This is Dr. James Crosby, Head of Sustainability at Advantage Utilities. I'd like to ask, could your organisation be more of an energy sector hero? Are you interested in improving your sustainability as a business? Well, now you can obtain the expert view and guidance on renewable energy solutions, on-site generation, carbon accounting, and sophisticated grid energy purchasing options through Advantage Utilities. Our team of experts use the latest tools to better analyse, track and reduce your organisation's energy usage and carbon emissions. To find out how Advantage Utilities can become your one-stop shop for all your energy and sustainability needs, please visit www.advantageutilities.com or give one of our passionate and friendly team a call on 0208-131-4747. Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by the incredible David Clark. David is an incredible CEO at Devices Group, also a non-executive director at the Energy Industries Council, which I'm quite excited about, actually. David, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, good afternoon, good morning, good evening. We're happy to to join you today and, and have a chat. Yeah, David Clark. So I'm currently the CEO of uh, Vices Group, and we can talk about a, a little bit about that later. Background: I was um, a Brit, Scott. Many years ago, I was an electrical engineer. I did a degree at Strathclyde University, and uh, uh, initially I was going to go off and do interesting things in industry, but decided that that was a little bit dull, and so joined the the energy and the oil and gas sector. And then I've had a career over the last 30 plus years, and I've stopped counting for obvious reasons. Uh, first job was in Sudan, uh, shooting wildcat seismic before going into the wireline sector, so oil field survey work in the uh, in Asia, Middle East, and then through a sequence of other roles in oil and gas, energy, and IT infrastructure sectors. Okay, so how did you actually get started in the energy sector then? Well, as I say, I was I was going to be uh, well, I was going to be uh, in the music sector. I w- wanted to be in music production and sound recording because I knew I was not a good enough musician to make it with my various bands. So, but then as I got through university, I realised that was probably not a great career step. I then went off to go and do the milk round with uh, with the big engineering and defence firms and the big industrials in the UK at that time, and it it was just too boring looking. So I decided I'd be more interested in things international and slightly more challenging and dynamic environments. And so I landed my first role with a company called Scythecon Delta, which, as I said, was uh, was a land seismic business uh, or land seismic organization and i joined a, a party uh, based in southern sudan in what's now uh, the darfur region in moglad 
shooting wildcat seismic. So I did that for a year. And then uh, after about a year, that company actually was going bust, which was a good learning in terms of due diligence of a future employer. But anyway, I, I moved from there to Schlumberger to wireline engineering. So I did my first um, training school out in Asia in Brunei. I spent three years in Japan, two and a bit years in China, some time in Indonesia. Before I came back to the UK uh, to do my first management roles, I was in Aberdeen. So the first time I actually lived and worked in Aberdeen, and that was running a downhole permanent gauge business. So a lot of fun. We were building a, a new business, a new service line, a new capability. And that was really exciting. Did that for a few, for three years. And then I moved back into the more mainstream Schlumberger. Um, and I was uh, a district manager in Australia, covering Northern Territories and Western Australia for a couple of years. I then spent a period in Middle East and Abu Dhabi as technical manager for the Middle East region. And then I came to India for two and a half years. I was country manager of India for Schlumberger Wireline Testing, based out of Mumbai, which was a lot of fun, fantastic country, lots of excitement, lots of challenges, but great place to be and live at the time. After that, I went to Schlumberger Paris uh, for a couple of years in a global uh, technical role, leading one of the big change initiatives, I think, called InTouch, where we really transformed the technical field organization across the global Schlumberger uh, wireline organization. And that cascaded out then across the wider organization. So I did that for a couple of years at a headquarters role in, in Paris before moving to London with Schlumberger, who had acquired a, an IT services business called SEMA. And I, I, I came across to run a division of SEMA, which was a business, business, uh, uh, disaster recovery and, and business con- uh, contingency services organization. So uh, effectively an IT business, but it was really a real estate business. We had 6,000 desks across the UK and about one and a half million square feet of offices and data centers. So I did that for a couple of years. We then packaged that business up and actually sold that, uh, that division. I then uh, I left Schlumberger at that point, 18 years with Schlumberger at that stage. So I moved on to Technique here in Aberdeen. So I was Technique Coflexes, so in the subsidy side of the business. I was originally a project director and then quickly moved into a regional role looking at uh, supporting the business in terms of business services, planning, commercial side of things, as well as knowledge management and a number of back office projects within technical flexive and, and the wider technique at the time. Did that for a couple of years and then actually I got pulled into a company I'd been newly created uh, a couple of months before I joined. It was Bob Keeler and, and PSN. So I joined PSN originally as uh, the regional director for Sub-Saharan Africa. So I did that for a couple of years and then I went to the Middle East to set up a, uh, to be the founding CEO of a joint venture PSN created with Mobadla Petroleum Services. So that was a, a JV to provide 
brownfield operations, maintenance and engineering services across the, the GCC. And that was a huge amount of fun. Big challenge. It was a startup business. It was uh, myself and I, I brought a couple of guys with me. We operated out of my bedroom in the hotel for about six months. And then over the course of the next, what was about four or five years, for about four and a half years, we were up to two and a half thousand employees. We had operations in, in the UAE, in Qatar, in Iraq. We had a big operation in Oman. We were in Bahrain. So we'd really kind of scaled and grown the business. We'd been acquired by Wood Group along the way. So I, uh, I was regional director of uh, both the, the PSN JV as well as the joint venture that uh, Wood Group, Legacy Wood Group had in the region. So that that was uh, a really interesting and challenging journey of starting up, growing, and scaling quite a, quite a complex business with multiple partners, multiple JV partners across a number of countries. Okay. That sounds like an amazing career you've had. Yeah. And then from there, I came back a couple of years, at, went back to Schlumberger to build a new business in Schlumberger. And then I uh, went to Acker. I was in Acker Solutions. I was EVP for a global business, um, the global services business for Acker Solutions, as well as country manager for the UK. And then I was headhunted to what was then Lloyd's Register in January of 2019 um, to take on the energy division of Lloyd's Register. And that was a global business which had been built up over a number of years. It was um, an organization which had struggled through the energy downturn. So I, when I came in, it was very much a, a business turnaround challenge. And we were able to successfully turn the business around. And then subsequently, about a year later, LR had made the decision to, uh, to consolidate back down to being a pure maritime business. And we were plan to divest the energy division. Uh, and as it happened, COVID hit us in February, March of 2020. And so we accelerated the sale process, sold the business on Teams during the summer of 2020 and 1st November 2020, just over three years ago. Uh, this week, uh, we went live as Vices Group. And in the last three years, we've set up the new brand, established our presence in 20-odd countries, continue to grow, develop the business and uh, significantly diversify from being heavily oil and gas focused to being today our consultancy division is probably 60% non-oil and gas. Okay. That sounds amazing, actually. I've got so many questions off the back of that. I was going to ask you at the beginning, I think you were saying that you went into the energy sector because of what you thought that it would be more exciting and challenging. Why did you think that it would be more exciting and challenging? And do you, do you still think it is? Oh, yeah. Look, uh, um, uh, the, the one thing, it was the travel. Um, and, you know, the world is the world's very different today. You know, when I was a graduate, people used to take a year out occasionally, but that wasn't as common then. And people um, tended to go into graduate training programs and big PLCs and uh, big engineering firms. As I said, I, that just looked a bit too dull and I was more interested in doing different things. And so the energy sector gave the opportunity to travel 
to suddenly uh, live and operate in lots of different parts of the world and be involved in some huge transformational projects. I mean, the, uh, the scale, the complexity, the engineering challenge that, uh, that we've solved in, not just in the oil and gas sector, but in the renewables and the transition technologies that are coming to fair are, are really exciting, interesting, and, uh, and, you know, a good challenge from a, from an engineering and a professional development perspective. Similarly, the opportunity to live in different countries for, you know, actually live in a country for two, three years gives you the ability to really get a chance to gain a perspective on the world and to understand, you know, that nobody has the absolute truth, you know, everything is relative. And so understanding living in different parts of the world, you can allow to appreciate others' perspective and whatever that may be, political, economic, whatever. And you don't need to necessarily agree with someone, but if you understand where they're coming from, the perspective, the background, the history behind it, then it makes for a more engaging and interesting conversations and, and uh, uh, you know, educational discussion. So, you know, for me, uh, the chance to travel, get to know people globally has been really one of my key drivers and interests in my career. And, you know, I spent a lot of years at Schlumberger and, and the big driver in Schlumberger was a very multinational organization and a fantastic mix of really strong, motivated and driven individuals that allowed you to really get things done as well as have a, a huge amount of fun along the way. Do you think that the energy sector is still, it's going through a lot of changes now, just now. Do you really think it is? It's, I think it's never been as, as, as exciting as, as it has been for years just now. What's going on? The transition we're going through. Yeah, look, there's a few things. We've, you know, one of the reasons I came to the business I'm in today was to help create something that was much more focused on the transition because the, the opportunities there, you know, Oil and gas has a bad reputation, and we absolutely have to recognize that there's been a lot of wrong, bad practice and poor practice in various companies over the years and in various parts of the world. But we also need to recognize that the world wouldn't be what it is today without energy. It's absolutely fundamental. And the general public have taken that for granted for many, many years. And the understanding of what does it take to go from an oil and gas world to a, a low carbon energy world is really un- misunderstood. And frankly, as an industry, an oil and gas industry, we've done a terrible job at engaging with the wider public to talk sensibly about what it is we do, what it takes, what transition will mean, and what, what it will take in terms of changing every aspect of of our lives, how we heat ourselves, how we feed ourselves, how we move around, how we make things, all of those will fundamentally change. Those will also make fundamental changes in how we live, how we work and things around us. So the power systems, the grid infrastructure that we need, the number of pylons that we're going to need, the number of wind turbines, the new gas systems, the new fluid systems that we're going to need to move hydrogen, ammonia, whatever molecule we decide to use. 
those will take big changes and they're fundamental changes to the lifestyle of everybody and the environment that we, we live and work in. So it's only uh, what I find interesting. It's really only been in the last one or two years that the world is really waking up to what is truly going to be needed to happen in terms of the energy transition. And I think as we now get to a point where the big milestone of 2030, where everyone said, yeah, we're going to get to this in 2030. 2030 is now effectively one election cycle away for many, many countries. Here in the UK, in the US, in France, in a number of major uh, democratic countries, we're now getting to the point where it's not someone else's problems, it's the problem today. That's coupled with the fact that we're increasingly seeing the true impact of climate change on, on ourselves, on the environment and on the climate. And so people are really understanding what it, that we need to get moving and we need to move at pace. So all of that being said, from an engineering perspective, from a career perspective, now is the time more than ever that we need really smart thinking, innovative individuals to come into the industry to not only help transition the legacy oil and gas industry, but to create and deliver the new solutions of tomorrow, because they're not separate things. The supply chain, the engineering expertise that's needed to deliver offshore wind, onshore solar, hydrogen, CCUS projects is exactly the same skill set as we have and are developed in the oil and gas sector. And we need to use the broad experience and capability of the oil and gas sector in doing large-scale, multi-billion dollar multi-decade scale projects successfully. So, you know, we've, we, we need to leverage every piece of talent, expertise, resources that we've got to get our transition solution in place. That, that comes right across that entire spectrum. So for a young graduate, an engineering graduate or a technician or anyone with a skill set looking to the energy sector, I would really encourage people to be more broad-minded about um, it's not just doing a little bit of only doing wind or only doing renewables. You're interconnected right the way through from source energy through to ultimate consumption. So there's a broad spectrum there and it, and it touches on every aspect of our society and how we live. Okay. Do you really think that it does? The getting to net zero does affect every industry in the Absolutely. Well, look, uh, every industry by nature uses energy. And whether we like it or not today, 80, 90% of that is, is non-renewable driven. And we will need to fundamentally change how those processes and those systems work. You know, a lot of industries, you can switch over to electricity and how you then generate at scale the electricity and critically, how do you get that electricity from the generation point to the point of consumption is mission critical in all of this. So that's it. There are a number of industries that today are reliant on hydrocarbons as part of the process. And they are more tricky and some of those are more challenging, but there are ways to decarbonize that, whether it's capturing the combusted carbons, 
um, with the existing process or changing the process fundamentally. So that will all change. So, you know, there is no aspect of life. Whatever you do, whatever you buy, whatever you consume, however you move requires energy. And so it affects everything. You know, good example. Today, we have in the UK, some in the region of 25 to actually it's about 32 gigawatts of offshore wind committed by a number of developers. The, the strong probabilities we're not going to get anywhere near that. We're certainly not going to build any of that of scale before 2030 because we can't connect it into the grid. It's going to take 15 years for most of the grids uh, to be built to allow us to be able to connect in those offshore assets into the UK grid to then distribute that to a point of consumption. So, you know, just drive. I, I live in Perth. You drive from Aberdeen to Perth, you'll see multiple signposts and demonstrations down the highway saying, you know, no to big pilots. Well, you know, for us to get to net zero, we're, we're going to have to, in the UK, we're going to have to double the grid infrastructure in the next 10 to 15 years. Then we're going to have to double it again before we get to 2050. So the world will change and we need to, we need to get after understanding that as a society and actually getting on and, and getting the the infrastructure built ready for that. Okay. I'm quite surprised actually. I that is something that I've not heard of before. I didn't think it would take that long. The infrastructure to to build. I've never have n- not anybody that I've interviewed actually touched on that. It's it 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 has been a challenge, a known challenge in the industry for a number of years. It's only now becoming into the public domain because it's now very much uh, one of the key gating factors for the success of the development of renewables. Whether you're doing a an onshore wind development, whether you're doing a solar development, or whether you're doing a mega giga, gigawatt scale offshore development. Okay. So, you know, that's why that's why I joined, you know, I've been active in in the energy sector, previously I was on what's now Offshore Energies UK. I was a, a non-exec director there. I'm now a non-exec director with the EIC. And part of that reason I'm I'm working and, and I'm very you know happy to contribute my time in, into the EIC is its its remit is about helping develop the global energy supply chain. And a key element to that is for us to help educate and inform the key stakeholders, and that's governments, that's the buyers of the supply chain, so the energy uh, producers, manufacturers, and distributors, as well as the general public, because we're not going to get to net zero without significant positive engagement and acceptance by the wider public of what what is going to change and what we need to do in terms of building infrastructure and changing how we live and operate. But do you think it's going to be easy to do that, though? No, it's not. And, you know, the the, the world, frustratingly, and, uh, you know, coming back to my earlier comments, one of the things that I've learned, and I've been incredibly privileged to have had the chance to live in a number of countries, uh, is that you have to get perspective and you have to understand there is no truth. There's always perspective and there's colors and shade. 
What's frustrating and, and a growing frustration at a political landscape is that whether you're in the US, whether you're in the UK, whether you're in Europe or many, many countries around the world, there's an increasing polarization and simplification of, you know, it's either black or white, it's either left or right. And uh, in terms of there's no grayness in the middle, there's no reality, there's no collaboration to get to a solution. And that is uh, that political landscape is unfortunately landing absolutely at the worst time for the energy transition because we need to be much more joined up. We need to be realistic. We need to collaborate to achieve the success and to execute on these transition projects because they're not just national. They're international. They're interconnected. You know, we we are going to become, we are already you know, highly interconnected from an energy, just an oil and gas perspective. We've seen the impact of Ukraine and the shutting off of the the Russian gas supplies and what that meant to us, every one of us, and the impact that had on our energy bills. You know, that interconnection is true, and it will equally be true in in a low carbon energy, energy transition world. Okay, so you think that we're still all going to be responsible? responsible to help each other look we're not going to we're, we're, we're not going to achieve results getting things thing in the uk the biggest challenge is planning part of the reason that uh, the grid infrastructure is going to take so long is it takes so long to get planning permission to boot anything up whether it's burying things under the ground or putting things up in the air whether that's a pylon a power line or a wind turbine so it, that takes time and we need to be able to accelerate that but The wider public also need to understand that for us to get to a low carbon or a zero carbon energy world, we are going to have to fundamentally change. We can't all just buy electric cars and plug them into our houses because there's not enough power in the domestic network to be able to feed that. Um, So you've got to change that, et cetera, et cetera. There is a huge chain, and that is the nature of energy systems. You've got whatever you, however you produce the energy, whether it's molecules or electrons, you've got to transport, you generate it, you store it, you transport it, and ultimately you consume it. And that, that can be very different for different systems. Part of the challenge that we've got in moving from oil and gas to a low carbon world is oil and gas is so actually very easy to handle. Oil is extremely portable. It's very high energy uh, density, so it's easy to fill a a tank in your car and drive for 600 miles. You can't do that with hydrogen. You can't do that with ammonia. It's difficult to do that with electrons today, not without spending an enormous amount on large-scale batteries. You know, these these things, so making the transition from a very end-user easy energy system to a more complex energy system will take time, it will cost, and it will uh, it will require us to change how we think and we operate. Okay. I never really thought about it like that, actually. Uh, again, the, the, the world is, is a bit simplistic. And, and as a sector, we need to have these open conversations. I mean, it's not just about Oh well, we want we want more wind turbines. We'll just switch those on. 
that doesn't happen overnight. I mean, the supply chain, our ability to build, scale, and grow and deliver on this is is a big, big challenge. You know, there are more manufacture. You know, there are more wind turbine commitments made uh, about probably ten times the number than we can actually produce today. So we've got to scale up how we grow, uh, how we build um, the the turbines, the infrastructure, the cable, the solar panels, the electrolyzers, all of that infrastructure. Okay. Now, equally, that is an enormous opportunity for businesses, for careers, for development. And what we see in the US with the IRA Act and the investments that that's, that's uh, attracting in electrification and renewables as well as decarbonization projects, they're, they're really, the Biden government have, have made a significant step change there when we're seeing the influx of investment coming from other parts of the world, including Europe and the UK, going to the US. We're seeing the, EU, the EU putting in place similar funding attractions to, uh, to pull, pull investment into their market. UK we're somewhat behind in that process and we need to be careful that we don't get left fully behind. Okay, so why is the UK behind then? Uh, look, you know, I'm, I'm non-political, but you don't have to uh, be too analytical to understand that we've been too internally focused as a nation over the last five, six years. Mm. We are conflicted in terms of knowing which way we want to go and we are, you know, we've We've created um, in the oil and gas and in the wider energy sector levels of uncertainty that make it extremely unattractive for investors to put their money into a market. You know, five, six years ago, the UK was absolutely in the world's best position in terms of leading edge on, on wind development, some great projects in play and, and planning in hydrocarbon decarbonization storage systems and uh, you know a huge capacity offshore wind to build huge markets next door in Europe to and really build on the engineering excellence that we created in oil and gas and the subsea world in oil and gas and replicate that in the transition and renewable sectors. We're kind of losing our, our position there now because the investments and the projects are actually moving ahead more at pace outside of the UK. And we're seeing the supply chain, and that means the engineers and the product development and the producers putting their investment overseas as well. So there's a risk here. So it's important that UK PLC as a as a country we 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 get a little bit more connected and we join the dots in terms of our regulatory or fiscal regimes, and indeed from the industry side, the industry bodies. The, stakeholders across the different sectors come together in a more connected way. Okay. What challenges do you see going forward in us all, you know, to achieve net zero? Do you think for me it's about breaking through some of those stakeholder barriers and, and getting getting colla- effective collaboration and aligned thinking right across the energy spectrum and that uh, as i said that's from generation to transportation to where you actually and how you actually end up using and consuming the the, the energy 
um, at the uh, at the sharp end, whether you're driving, whether you're heating your home, you're running your shower, or whatever you're doing from a manufacturing and industrial perspective. Um, so we can't, we, you know, we, we've got some great people, there's some really interesting projects, but if we look at the stats, the number of projects that are going, that are fully funded are, are minuscule. You know, if uh, the EIC, one of the fantastic things that they do, they have a, a data platform that looks at projects around the world, all sorts of different projects and all sorts of energy projects, oil and gas, coal, hydrogen, CCUS, they've got that. All of the project captured there, an incredibly powerful tool. The concerning factor is if you look at that and see, right, how many of those projects are funded and are expected to go to final investment decision, FID. In the oil and gas world, it's a pretty high percentage. But as soon as you get into the hydrogen CCS, uh, CCUS and, and other sort of transition projects, it's, you know, sub 5% are likely to get funding or have funding in place. So we've got a big challenge to make those projects work and then get them to operate. Okay. So what kind of... I'm sorry, this uh, we've gone off track from our I know. career conversation. I, was, I know, I know, I know. It, for me, this is, this is about, actually, this is why it's such a fantastic time to be an engineer coming into this world because the opportunities to grow, the opportunities to be transformational, to be part of the biggest transformation we've gone through in the last, you know, couple of hundred years is quite phenomenal. And, you know, this week and, and this year, everyone talks about AI and AI will be transformational as well. But frankly, if we don't have the energy to feed the computers, there ain't going to be any AI anyway. So energy is such a fundamental. It is the starting point for economic development. And we've got to get that right. Okay. I was going to ask you as well, what skills do you think that the new graduates coming into the energy sector will need then? So, so some smart thinking. They need to be ambitious. They need, and, and that they shouldn't accept what I and my generation say is, should be done. They should constantly challenge the norm. They should constantly be pushing um, and accepting, not accepting business as usual. We need to keep innovating. So I'm, I, I would uh, look to have talent coming in who are ambitious, who want to challenge. Who are keen to innovate and, and keen to engage. As I've talked a number of times already, you need to collaborate. You need to listen. You need to work together and building strong relationships uh, to become effective is really critical in, in success. Okay. But it might be quite hard for a young graduate to, to challenge somebody that's been in industry for many years. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's how you challenge and how you get involved in it. And look, I've, again, I've, I've had the privilege of working with a large range of graduates over the years and, and various businesses that I've operated in. And the, the graduates and, and some of those have been used very much as a, a sounding board. And one of my last businesses, we had them set up and they were, they were given specific business challenges, you know, tell us how we do this differently. So, 
you know, it's not about just going in and arguing with your boss. It's about engaging, understanding why things are done a certain way, and then challenging how can we do it differently. You know, I've I've seen many many times in companies and particularly in projects we've been involved in, where you know you go step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, and then when you set everybody in the room, you tell them, okay, what what do we actually do in step two to three? And what's in three to four? What's in four to five? And everybody thinks a different thing. They all think, oh, well, that's important because, or that's important because. You get people in the room, nine times out of 10, you go from a six-step program to three, sometimes two. And that's the sort of innovation, that's the sort of step change that you can create when you get people together, you bring their minds together and get people to understand holistically what's the problem here? What's the challenge on the table? What's the solution that we're trying to solve? Not just what's the little bit of the problem I'm being asked to work on today. Okay. No, thank you. I was going to ask you and ask this to everybody. Have you had any career disasters? Um, have I had any career disasters? Look, uh, every company I've worked with, and I've had the privilege of working with, you know, a handful of absolutely world-class companies. But they're only world-class companies because of the people that are in them. Companies are people, ultimately. And I've had some fantastic relationships. And, and you know, one of the reasons I stay or I work with companies is, is the people around it. Of course, I've had challenges in the past. And on reflection, I would have done some things differently um, uh, to get a, a quicker outcome. But all of them have been learning, ex- learning experiences. And there's nothing that I've come away with thinking, you know, it was a, a tra- you know, even a train wreck. You can, you can, you can learn a lot from. And, you know, most of my career has been in the service related sector. And regardless of how good a service company you are, things will go wrong. Something will go wrong. How as a business and how as an individual you react to that failure and how you correct for that failure, whether it's an individual, whether you're leading a team or whether you're leading an entire company will shape the culture and shape the perception of your customer on who you are and what you are. So even when you have a problem, that problem becomes an opportunity for you to build a much stronger reputation with that customer because the way that you reacted, you overreacted, you solved the problem, you recognized the problem and you solved their issue and you got it done. Okay. That's excellent advice, actually. So is there anything in your career that you would still like to achieve? Oh, yeah, lots, lots. You know, we've got we've got the biggest challenge ahead of us, which is, uh, uh, you know, the energy transition. That's going to take lots of lots of teams and lots of really innovative thinking. So for me, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working with some of the world's smartest people, some of the smartest people I've worked with in, in a long time. And it's how do we help ourselves to help our customers and the wider wider customer pool to deliver on these solutions. So there's lots more ahead of us to be able to deliver this platform, as vices and the solutions and the multiple things that we cascade across the business. You know, we're in oil and gas, but we're in renewables, we're in wind, we're in solar, we're in nuclear, we're in grid, grid connectivity, we're in uh, transition, hydrogen, CCUS projects, as well as 
process sector, petrochemicals, pharmaceuticals. So we, we have a very broad sector and a broad geography footprint. We operate from Canada to, you know, to the US, to Trinidad, all the way through Europe, the Middle East. We're in Korea, China, Malaysia, Australia. So we, we have a truly global footprint and a global customer base. And so we've got some fantastic, interesting, challenging projects all over the world. And so I'm excited about the opportunity to help deliver those projects and help support the creation of the next generation of energy and energy system solutions. Okay. So what would you say was your zone of genius? What are you most excellent at? Oh, not excellent at anything. No, no. Look, I, um, I think one of my, one of the things I'm, has been part of my success, I guess, as a career is, is being able to come into businesses, to, to markets, to sectors, to kind of step back and look at the bigger picture and try and understand, okay, what's going on? And to try and understand where are the gaps, the, where are the technology gaps or where are the opportunities to change the process, to change the solution to create much more value, both for the customer, the end customer, but also as a business. So how we, how we deliver a product, how we produce something, how do we deliver it? How do we install it? What does that do for the customer? How do we, how do we create much better value for our end customer? So that's something that, you know, I've moved around different markets, different geographies, and indeed different sectors. But that's a skills, that's a, an experience and an approach that can be applied across all of those sectors and, and industries. Okay, but that is a, a, an amazing skill to have, especially for, a, for an engineer, because normally they're usually focused on the, on the smaller, smaller scale, rather. Yeah, I mean, I think one of my approaches is, and, and engineers love to engineer, and the trick is, is, is not engineering that you don't have to. You know, there's always at a system level, you know, creation of something new. But equally, if it's if it fulfills the envelope and does what it needs to do at that point, then don't re-engineer it and focus on the things that really change and move the needle. Okay. I was gonna ask you what keeps you motivated when when times get tough? Um keeping the keeping the teams and building teams. You know, again, companies are only made up of people. Yeah, there's a bunch of assets and computers and all that, but it's that that's incidental. It's the people. What motivates me is being able to create and sustain and grow meaningful careers and opportunities that really excites me to see the development of talent and pulling talent up and stretching people and seeing them grow in their experience and their career. And that that's hugely rewarding and it's a it's a huge amount of fun. Okay. So do you have any advice for anybody wanting to join the energy sector then? Yeah, hurry up and get on board. No, I like my I guess my advice would be don't be swayed by the anti-oil and gas rhetoric, which as I said, there's there there there's lots of good reasons for that in history, but we've got to make the change. And as as every climate change model will tell you, we're still gonna need 20 to 40% hydrocarbons come 2050. How we use them, how we consume 
and how we decarbonize that will be radically different. But we'll still be using hydrogen. We'll still be using hydrocarbon molecules as a as a primary energy source for many many decades. So it's not an industry that's going to get switched off tomorrow. So don't be dissuaded by or don't be persuaded that it's all going to finish tomorrow. It it won't. It will still be needed. But that same skill that skill set is going to be needed in all the other integrated energy systems that we that we are now developing. Okay, that's good advice. I'm going to ask you maybe one final question, and it, yep. it's been and it's been an amazing interview. I could have talked to you all day. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? Yeah, I would have bought Apple stock twenty five years ago, thirty years ago. I would have invested in stock as opposed to all the money I spent buying iPhones and Macs over the years and iPads over the years. That's a very clever answer, actually. That is a very clever answer. I really like that. Okay, I'm going to wrap things up now. That's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank David for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.